Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, author and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our third look at Sir Cyril Smith, the reviled British MP who was exposed after his death as a pedophile. Before we get going, as always, I have the normal show notes if you would like to follow me on social media. Simply look for the DeathCast, DeathCast Pod, or DeathCast Podcast. I am on most social media platforms. If you enjoy what I do and would like to help support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do that. The easiest one is to leave a five-star review wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts. Also, like and subscribe to the show there. You can also share the show on social media. You can also buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash thedeathcast. You can also support my sponsors. There's currently three of them, although only two are running this week. That would be Wongo Puzzles and Blend Jet 2. Supporting them really does help support the show as the way these sponsorship opportunities work, I only receive commission if a listener purchases their products using my link. All right, now all of that is out of the way. Find yourself a nice comfy chair. Kick back, relax. I've got my coffee. I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week talking about Cyril Smith, it was the end of 1965, and Smith had really just dodged a bullet as... Police in and around Rochdale decided not to pursue charges against him related to abuses of boys inside Cambridge House, which, if you'll recall, was a youth hostel that Smith and a group of other men had founded and which Smith really was the only one to oversee. Now, this really did come at a fortuitous time for Smith, as with the coming of 1966, he was elected as the mayor of Rochdale. More importantly, however, Smith was granted a MBE, known as the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. He was starting to get noticed by more than just party leaders in and around Rochdale and in the Labour Party. Now he's actually got people much higher up than his normal fare of cronies taking notice of him and of the things that he is doing. Smith further went on to cement himself in the public consciousness, however, when the BBC decided to air a documentary about him called Man Alive, which was really nothing more than a publicity tool to get Smith in front of more eyes. The entire documentary was about Cyril's time as mayor. It shows 
footage of him standing while the Rochdale Children's Choir plays for him, getting out of a limousine with his mother, as well as exiting the austere home that he kept. Cyril still continued to convey the common man image to the populace at large, and if I was going to try and quantify this image for someone, I would say it was most closely akin to the image that the deceased professional wrestler Dusty Rhodes liked to project of being the common man, despite the fact that he was actually quite wealthy. There were occasions where he would let you see hints of that wealth, but by and large, he kept that part of his life to the side so that the image projected was only that of someone who was the same as everyone that was watching. And it did work for Smith. He was immensely popular as mayor. One notable scene from this documentary involved Smith conversing with two reporters, and he's basically lambasting them about a report they had done the previous week on the local football club. And after leaving, the two reporters are left to sit there by themselves as one of them looks towards the camera and says, quote, He's popular. I think he's done a great deal for the town. But people have hyped up this thing that it's Smith's town. People get the impression that he's the be-all, end-all. But that's not the case. Except that it was the case. Cyril Smith was slowly building an institution in and of himself inside of Rochdale. And even after his death, Fingers and traces of Cyril Smith still remain there. When he was a counselor, he was seen as someone to go to when you wanted to get things done. When he became mayor, this only increased tenfold. Now, much like Jimmy Saville with his mother Agnes, whom he had dubbed the Duchess, Cyril Smith also played up the relationship between he and his mother, dubbing her the mayoress. Unlike Agnes Saville, however, Smith's mother maintained a job working as a cleaning woman in the town hall, and once her duties there were over, she would go out and perform civic duties on her son's behalf which did a lot towards helping to build the mythos of Cyril Smith, the man, the individual who had come from extremely poor beginnings to rise up to the point where he was one of, if not the most respected single citizen within the town of Rochdale. Midway through Cyril's term as mayor, something happened that really not only sent shockwaves through the town of Rochdale, but through Great Britain itself. 
they were attempting to balance the city's books. And one of the things that it was decided upon that would need to happen was individuals who lived in council housing. Now, for those unaware of what council housing is, it's really simple. It's basically public housing. In the United States, we have HUD housing. Council houses are the same thing, although these are built, maintained, and overseen by the area in which they are located. While many people who lived inside of these public houses were supporters of the Labor Party, and there was immense pushback against Cyril Smith because of this mandate that in order to balance the books for the year, we're not only going to have to raise taxes, we're also going to have to raise rents on these apartments. Now, according to Smile for the Camera, there was already a massive amount of resentment simmering beneath the surface towards Cyril Smith. Many within the party saw him as egotistical and a publicity hound, both traits that many of them shared, although Cyril was a glutton for publicity that none of them could match. And this request to raise the rates in the council housing actually was the catalyst for Smith declaring midway through his term that he was no longer a member of the Labour Party. Basically, they held a council meeting after Smith had convinced friends of his within the party that they needed to raise the rents. They were going to vote with him, unbeknownst to Smith. Before this meeting took place, members of the Labour Party secretly met and all of them voted to unanimously denounce the idea of raising council flat rates. During this meeting, someone handed Smith a piece of paper that told him this and he exploded in the middle of the meeting standing up, yelling at all of those assembled that he was no longer a member of the Labour Party. This type of thing simply did not happen in not only British politics, but politics in general. People did not simply change their party in the middle of a term. Some accounts have that after this happened, Smith regretted having done this publicly, although the Labour Party refused to even consider the idea of bringing him back into the fold. By doing this, Smith took control away from the city council because not only did he leave the Labour Party, but four other members of the party left the Labour Party with him and set up an independent party which held controlling interest in the city council. So Smith was really a man without a country at this point. He turned his attention outside of his various business dealings to education. Once again, he was able to convince the city council as well as some friends of his to help bankroll a new 
charter school for children. This became known as the Knollview School. Please remember that name because we're going to be talking about it quite a lot. Knollview has a very disturbing legacy that is echoed all throughout Great Britain at many of these types of schools. Now, Knollview was founded with the specific idea of overseeing youths with intellectual disabilities. We're talking children who are autistic, have Down syndrome, that type of thing, but also children who had problems dealing with the outside world. And by that, I mean kind of kids, you know, we all went to school with them who would get into arguments or fights with their teachers, parents, and or other students. Stephen King liked to refer to this type of individual as JDs or juvenile delinquents. So the school wasn't just made up of intellectually disabled individuals, but the disabled did make up a large percentage of the school's population. And I do have to prepare you before we dive into this after the commercial break that the things that took place at Knollview School are much more horrific on a much grander scale and over a much longer period of time than what happened at Cambridge House. And Smith wasn't the only person involved with this. But we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a BlendJet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes in just 20 seconds. BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. And it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C cord. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water and a drop of soap and you're good to go. So what are you waiting for? Go to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free 2-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use the code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free 2-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Again, that's BlendJet.com and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's capital D, capital C, A-S-T, capital P-O-D, at checkout to get 12% off and free two-day shipping. We are back. Now, right before the break, I was discussing 
the things that are going to happen at Knollview School. I was preparing you and warning you that these are not the same types of things that took place at Cambridge House. Knollview School was founded in 1969. The original plans for it came about in 1963 when a conglomeration of different towns decided that they needed some place for their really their special needs students to go that could focus solely on them and it wasn't until 1968 that Smith got involved now when Smith became involved it was through the chairing of a committee. The Special Subcommittee RE Residential School for Maladjusted Boys. I know you're thinking, why are they calling them maladjusted boys when many of them had handicaps? You have to remember that this is the 1960s and things were looked at differently during that time period. Again, as with last episode, I am quoting directly from the report compiled by the Rochdale Council for Use in Parliament entitled Cambridge House, Knollview, and Rochdale. Quote, this subcommittee was charged with making the practical arrangements for the setting up of this school. Just as he had been instrumental in bringing Cambridge House into existence, so too was Cyril Smith central to the establishment of Knollview School. On 15 January 1970, powers reluded to the running of the school were transferred from the special subcommittee to the Board of Governors. Cyril Smith was appointed a member of the board in 1970. He remained a member of the board and chaired it until his election to Parliament in 1972. It is important to note that Smith was on the board of governors of a number of other schools during this same period. Cyril Smith joined the board of governors again in 1994. He and Harry Wilde were governors of Knollview School at approximately the same points in time, which is further evidence of the long-standing nature of their association. Remember that name, Harry Wilde, because he is going to come up again and again as we discuss Knollview School. The first students were admitted to Knollview School on January 8, 1969 with an age range mandate from 7 to 16 years old. Unfortunately, some of these children who were admitted into Knollview School at this time already had deviations in personality. And that is important to note because along with child sexual predators targeting this school. There were also students that targeted other students. This type of thing is fairly common in the United States in what we term as juvenile detention centers where older or stronger juveniles will target the younger juveniles and force them to submit to horrific sex acts. So, 
that began almost right away in Nullview School. Nobody seemed to take this into account, however, when the school was founded. Now, unlike a number of other schools of this nature, children who attended Nullview School were intended to live there almost year-round. They would be sent home for holidays, but by and large, they were at the school 24-7. This wasn't a hard and fast rule, however. Some students were allowed to return home on the weekends, but as a residential social worker by the name of Martin Diggin stated during testimony, other pupils had to earn the right to go home on the weekend. So it seems that the children who had to remain there year-round except for on holidays were the norm and the other students were kind of picked almost at random or depending on the whims of particular staff members. Now, unlike what are termed as care homes in Great Britain, Nullview School was not subjected to many of the oversights that these care homes are subjected to. And as a result of this, the amount of indiscretions that were allowed to be perpetrated within the school walls was staggering in both the amount of offenses that took place, but also in the longevity of the offenses taking place. So Nullview opened in 1969. It wasn't until around 1989-1990 that people started really taking notice and making a fuss about that, but we'll get to that later. Along with the exploitation of other students by fellow students at Nullview, as discussed, there were adult predators who came into the school. And what I'm about to talk about next may sound like something out of a QAnon conspiracy theory, but is in reality fact. It was known that people from the school were taking the children out and prostituting them, so much so, in fact, that by the 1980s, a commission sent out a pamphlet stating that children at Nullview School were at a higher risk of contracting HIV than children at other similarly situated schools. A network began at Nullview School almost from its inception of men getting themselves placed into positions of power within the school so that they could abuse these children. But more than that, these men facilitated other men traveling to the area to abuse the children from as far away as Manchester, they also would take these children and travel with them to other areas where men would pay to have sex with these boys. 
I want you to let that sink in for a moment. What was going on out of Knollview School was sex trafficking. This is in the late 1960s, early 1970s, up until the time the school closed in the early to mid-90s. Children were being trafficked out of this school. People knew about it, but really did nothing to stop it because the individuals who were associated the school with the school, such as Cyril Smith, were seen as being extremely powerful and not the type of individual who you could cross and get away with it. In the report, Cambridge House, Knollview, and Rochdale, it talks about how it was known among members of the social services that children from Knollview School were working as prostitutes. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that these children were initially forced into this way of life while attending the school. There is evidence to suggest that some of these boys began prostituting themselves outside of the school because doing so allowed them to make money. This is what in Britain is known as a rent boy. There are different definitions for it. Most of the time it's used to describe a younger adult male who prostitutes himself for money. Sadly, though, at least from my knowledge of the term, more often than not, the way it is and was used was to describe underage boys who prostituted themselves for money. And that is the case with Knollview, as in Rochdale Town Center there were public bathrooms. And people observed children from the school on an almost continuous stream coming to and from these public bathrooms where the rumor around town was they were being sexually taken advantage of. In today's parlance, they state that these children were actually being sexually abused, but back during the time that it was happened, it wasn't seen as being abuse, more that it was these children were allowing this to happen to them we know in 2023 that that is not the case, no matter what the child may tell you. Someone put them up to this action, and most of the time with these young boys, it was because they were dealing with systematic abuse <clears throat> that they came to equate one with money and or feelings of affection from their abusers, so they in turn sought it out, but there's also the double-edged sword of some of these children were told, you need to be here at this time or there are going to be serious consequences for you. Members of social services, specifically children's social workers, were aware that this was going on throughout the 1970s, yet they did absolutely nothing to stop it. One of these adults was a man by the name of David Higgins, who came to Knowview School in its first year, 1969, 
and ended up resigning for unknown reasons on December 31st, 1971. Another student later stated that Higgins had actually left the school because there was a rumor going around the school that Higgins had, in fact, raped a student. Other students gave further evidence against Higgins, stating that he continuously molested them and was known to take students out on camping trips, which were little more than forays for him to have unfettered access to these children. Higgins was eventually arrested and convicted in 1976 and 1983 on charges that were not related to the students at Knollview School. Higgins was again investigated as part of Operation Cleopatra, which was a widespread investigation into child sexual abuse in and around Greater Manchester care homes. Higgins eventually pleaded guilty in 2002 to, quote, offenses involving the sexual abuse of tube pupils from Knollview, for which he was sentenced to 12 months imprisonment. Now, I know you're sitting there going, what the fuck? Why was he only given 12 months? Well, in Great Britain, when it comes to sex crimes, they can only charge you under what the law was at the time that the offenses were committed. For those of you who've heard my Jimmy Savile series, you're well aware with the laws in Great Britain how, by and large, the age of consent is 16 and the individual that is having relations with the child can be of any age from that point onward. And the law has to use the same lens that would have been used to investigate and try the crime as was in place when the crimes actually occurred. We will be back in just a moment. Are you tired of the same old boring puzzles? Mix things up with Wongo puzzles. Each puzzle is a custom design with intricate patterns and whimsical shapes that will keep you engaged for hours. Plus, their eco-friendly materials and commitment to sustainability make Wongo puzzles a guilt-free way to unwind. They're 100% wooden puzzles. They'll last forever. Each piece is hand-drawn, so no two pieces are the same, and you'll discover some fun, whimsy pieces as you work through it. They come in a custom wooden box, which is perfect for storage and gifting. With stunning designs and unique shapes, Wongo puzzles are cut above the rest. What are you waiting for? Go to wongopuzzles.com and pick your puzzle today. And be sure to use the promo code DCASTPOD to get 10% off your order. This is the most fun you've had with a puzzle, guaranteed, or your money pack. Go to W-O-N-G-O puzzles.com and use the code DCASTPOD to get 10% off your order and get puzzling right now. We are back. I have a full cup of coffee. One story of abuse by Smith at Knollview comes from the early 1970s. This boy was one of those who had also been abused by Higgins. 
And in evidence that he gave this individual stated that Smith abused him on numerous occasions, which, at least from what I could find, the most heinous of events being Smith putting the child over his knees and forcing the boy to touch his genitalia as Smith beat him with his hand. This same individual stated that the headmaster at the school found out about this incident and accused him of a trying to destroy Cyril Smith's reputation and that in retaliation for this, the headmaster spanked him with a paddle in front of other students at the school inside of the gymnasium. According to the report on Cambridge House, Knollview, and Rochdale, during the early years of the school, there was, in fact, at least some attempt made to help the students that were attending it, as they were routinely sent to see an actual doctor, although I am unable to ascertain what this man's medical degree was in. It does appear as though he may have been a psychiatrist, and that this man did in fact attempt to help these children deal with whatever issues it was that they may have been having, although eventually this type of care at the school and for the students was discontinued. So all of this was going on in and around the school. Smith is involved in this. Others were involved in it too, including Harry Wilde, who I mentioned earlier. Both Wilde and Smith sat on the school's board and were known to have keys to enter the school, basically granting them free access to Rome as they would at any time of day or night. Both individuals have been described as coming to the school and doing little more than watching the boys, whether that was while they were in classes or doing particular activities, or even while they were showering, although unfortunately none of this information was made available to either the police or the public at the time that it was going on. With all of this being known, we're now going to shift focus a little bit to discuss the things that happened in 1970 with Cyril Smith. You'll recall from the last episode we discussed his assaults on students at Cambridge House. In 1970, a former pupil at Cambridge House was arrested in Rochdale Center after attempting to solicit a minor for the purposes of sexual activity. When questioned by police, this young man stated something to the effect of he was only doing what Cyril Smith had done and what Cyril Smith had taught him to do. Unlike the earlier incident in 1965 when Cambridge House closed, the police this time took the words of this particular man to heart and began an investigation into Cyril Smith. Now, according to a woman by the name of Eileen Kershaw, 
who was, for all intents and purposes, one of Smith's most trusted advisors and friends, she became aware of this accusation against him at some point in 1970 when Smith and his mother appeared at her home unannounced and simply burst into the house. And I'm taking this accounting from the book Smile for the Camera, The Double Life of Cyril Smith by Simon Dakach and Matthew Baker, although there is an accounting of it in the report Cambridge House, Knollview, and Rochdale. Now, according to Kershaw, Smith was usually extremely jovial when he came to her home, but on this occasion, all of the jovility that he normally displayed was absent, and he immediately began explaining to both her and her husband that a number of boys had made accusations against him in regards to his having abused them. Now, naturally, Smith denied these accusations wholeheartedly, further claiming that the police had a vendetta against him, which is why they were investigating Smith. Although it's not clear what this vendetta he claimed that the police had against him actually was, Kershaw further stated that Smith showed up at her house night after night after night to let them know what was going on with everything, as well as to really pour his heart out to them. From all appearances, Smith was extremely shaken up by this, although I have a feeling that it really wasn't that he was worried, more so it was indignation over the fact that someone had questioned his activities and had dared to say he had done something wrong. Remember, Cyril Smith had an extremely large ego and had a very well-defined sense of self by this point in time. Now, according to Kershaw, Quote, he'd complain about this boy who accused him of abuse. He was making stories up and the police were egging him on. He'd wear us down with his woe. It was really eating away at him, but we believed him. He was very convincing. Kershaw goes on to state that although Smith convinced her and her husband that these accusations were more likely than not untrue, she did take the unusual step of going and finding one of the students she had known from Cambridge House and asking him about the accusations herself. I say this is unusual because historically with cases such as this, you can go back to the Saville series for reference, when someone brought up accusations about an individual who was in a position of power in the public spotlight, almost never did the individual that these accusations were brought up to go and do an independent investigation on their own to find out whether or not the story had any sort of validity. And the reason for that, particularly in the case of Jimmy Saville, 
is that by and large the stories that were brought to them were presented in such a way that the individual receiving this information did not find them to be credible. Which, if you have heard the series on Saville, you understand my point of view on all of that, that the majority of those accusations were in fact not credible, and that while he was morally in the wrong for the actions that he partook in, much of what happened, whether it was right or wrong, were unfortunately consensual. Smith is another beast entirely, as Smith's actions had no form of consent in them in any way, shape, or form. Now, Eileen Kershaw says that when she was able to find one of these students, she did question the young man as to whether or not anything had happened between Cyril Smith and other boys at Cambridge House. Kershaw stated that the boy was silent, really just refusing to answer her questions, and eventually drove off without responding to her. Now, with hindsight, we can look at this and say it's obvious that the boy had experienced something, or at least knew others who had experienced something, at the hands of Cyril Smith. But at the time that it this occurred, the way Kershaw took it was that the boy's statements were unfounded. Kershaw further noted that as time wore on and the investigation intensified, she noticed that Smith had begun taking what was said to be handful of, of pills, and when asked about this, Smith replied that they were Valium. This was in the period of time when still further boys were coming forward. In total, there were seven young men who, at the time of the abuses, were boys who came forward and spoke to the police about the abuses that they had suffered at the hands of Cyril Smith. Smith is unique in the way he handled this. While he was bemoaning the fact that the police were turning these boys against him at night, during the day, Cyril Smith was in fact plotting and planning. It's known that on at least one occasion, he showed up at the Rochdale Police Department and demanded to know what information the police had on him, which gives us some indication as to the size of his ego, his sense of self-importance, also how brazen Smith was, in that he felt that he was an untouchable part of Rochdale society, and he had the right to go to the police and demand this information from them. But that wasn't the only thing that Smith was doing. There is evidence that Smith, in fact, engaged in witness tampering, going to the boys who were accusing him of having abused them and trying to get them to recant their stories, oftentimes with threats of violence and or promises of money. Evidence of this is given by an individual by the name of Kevin Griffiths, who stated that at this period of time he was getting married and Smith randomly showed up at the wedding, making certain to place himself in photographs with Kevin and his new bride, 
one could only come to the conclusion that Smith was doing this as a way to point to these photographs to show the police, see, I haven't done anything wrong to this boy. In fact, I was at his wedding and was in the wedding photographs with him and his family. It's a very smooth, calculating maneuver on Smith's part. Eventually, these nightly visits to the Kershaw family did pay off. Whether it was because they had just become annoyed with Smith or they actually believed him, Eileen convinced her husband to call their local MP who they were friends with. This was a man by the name of Jack McCann. McCann was a bit of an oddball when it came to members of parliament as he had no car and really lived out in the middle of nowhere. So Eileen's husband drove out and actually got Jack and brought him back to the house where Cyril laid his tale of woe at the man's feet. According to Eileen Kershaw, Smith and Jack talked in their house for roughly six hours before her husband drove McCann back to his home. This only after McCann promised Smith and the Kershaws that he would reach out to the director of public prosecutions himself and ask that a decision be made in regards to the case. Now, according to Kershaw's story, weeks passed before they heard anything, and eventually they did. Cyril called Eileen's husband and let him know that he needed to come to his office immediately. When Jack did show up at the office, he found Cyril sitting at his desk, purportedly crying his eyes out, stating, quote, It's over. It's finished. They've decided there's no case to answer. Whether or not Eileen Kershaw's story is, in fact, the gospel honest truth, is debatable. The inquiry into Cambridge House, Knollview, and Rochdale came to the conclusion that no undue pressure had, in fact, been placed on the authorities during the course of this 1970 investigation into accusations that Cyril Smith had molested boys at Cambridge House. And we have to imagine that the police did do a thorough job in this investigation, at least to some extent, as it has been noted that the police did believe the accusations which were filed against Smith. They just couldn't find enough evidence to corroborate the stories that were being told to them, and there were not enough people in and around Rochdale willing to come forward and state that these things had, in fact, happened. My personal opinion uh, in regards to this particular investigation of Smith is that it was probably a little bit of both. There's that old saying that you hear one side of the story, you hear the other side. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I do believe that Smith did get 
Kershaw's husband to contact Jack McCann, and that McCann did, in fact, reach out to the authorities to find out what was going on. I also believe that the police at least did enough digging into Smith that they felt certain there was enough evidence to go forward with a trial. However, I also believe that McCann's involvement probably made the head of the public prosecution's office think twice about pressing charges against someone the status of Cyril Smith. He quite rightly reasoned that while the man may have done these things, there was no evidence that it was currently going on, and more importantly for the head of public prosecutions at this time, going after a man like Cyril Smith was more likely than not career suicide, as Smith was very well known in town, as we've already discussed. He was also known on a national stage, and he had a lot of friends who were much more powerful than he was, who could not only make things miserable for this individual, but more likely than not, effectively end his career should he decide to pursue this case against Smith. We are going to end this episode here with Smith having just escaped being charged with child abuse. We're going to pick it up next week in 1971 when Smith takes the next step in his political career and actually runs for office as a member of parliament. I hope you have enjoyed this third part in the Cyril Smith series. If you have, please share it with your friends on social media or even in your real life. People don't realize that things like that with you sharing what it is that I do here on the DeathCast mean more than any review ever could because it means that I'm doing my job right. I'm covering these stories to the best of my ability and that you want other people to hear just exactly what I am doing. Until next time, The Death Cast is a joint production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasting. Stay morbid!